0: In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Seerah Intensive two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah, alihi wa sahbihi Ajmaeen. InshaAllah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi Asirat al-Nabawiyyah, the prophetic biography In the previous session we were talking about We concluded the study of uh, one of the major incidents Or major events rather, of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Sulhul Hudaybiyyah Which was at the end, the very end, the tail end Of the uh, sixth year of the Prophet Sallallahu residence in the city of Medina Or as we uh, refer to it, the sixth year of Hijrah So what we'll be talking about now is the beginning of the seventh year of Hijrah The Prophet Sallallahu uh, residence in the city of Medina And the narrations uh, for, about the life of the Prophet ﷺ basically mention that the Prophet ﷺ returned back from Hudaybiyah towards, of course, the end of the year because the Prophet ﷺ went to go perform the Umrah, uh, which was the original intent of the journey of Hudaybiyah. The Prophet ﷺ went to. Okay, turn it off. Okay, I got you. The Prophet ﷺ went to go perform the Umrah, and of course he was blocked. He was prevented from performing the Umrah. So the Prophet ﷺ, instead of uh, performing the Umrah according to the terms of the treaty and the agreement, the Prophet ﷺ instead uh, entered into the treaty, the agreement of Hudaybiyah. and then returned back from uh, that place of Hudaybiyah right outside of the city of Mecca to the city of Medina. Along with that, of course, we talked about this, so I'm not going to rehash all the details, but along with that, the Prophet ﷺ uh, also received the revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which instructed him what to do in the situation, what is to be done in the circumstance where someone has put on the ihram in order to perform hajj or umrah, but then they are blocked due, you know, primarily by the enemy or due to, you know, any other situation or circumstance, they are then blocked from performing the umrah or the hajj, what are they to do in that situation? And of course the instruction was that you go as far as you can, But because there is a legitimate reason that is blocking you, you exit from the ihram, shaving the head, offering whatever sacrifice that you intended to offer, and then you return back from there with the intention in place to return back and perform the hajj and umrah at your next available opportunity. So that's exactly what happened. And of course, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah already had the agreement in place that we will come back a year from this date to perform the Umrah at that particular time. So that's exactly what the Prophet did. Now, the books of history and the books of narration basically mention Musa bin Uqba. For for instance, Imam al-Bayhaqi also in his Dala'il-Nubuwa, Ibn Ishaq also mentions this as well that the Prophet ﷺ, when he came back from Hudaybiyah, he resided in the city of Medina for the remainder of the month of the hijjah And then the beginning of the month of Muharram of the following year, the seventh year. And a little while into the month of Muharram, the Prophet ﷺ at that time departed the city of Medina once again from what we know as the Battle of Khaybar. Now, to explain this, and some uh, of the historians are specific, saying that the Prophet resided, stayed in Medina for about 20 days after returning back from the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. He was in Medina for 20 days before he departed for Khaybar again. And in fact, now, now to talk about the Battle of Khaybar, why did the Prophet go to the Battle of Khaybar? What led to the Battle of Khaybar? All right, so Khaybar was a place to the north of the city of Medina that was considered a stronghold. It was known as the city of fortresses. And it was considered a stronghold for the Jewish tribes in the Arabian Peninsula. And in fact, Banu Nadir, when they had been expelled from the city of Medina due to violating the constitution of Medina and also committing treason by attempting to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ, and that is something that they had confessed to, they confessed to attempting to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. The prophet, the the people, many of the people of Banu Nadir, they went and took up residence in the place of Khayba, and in fact, in the about a year or a year and a half ago we talked about the incident in the fifth year of Hijrah we talked about the incident that is known as the Battle of the Trench or Ghazwatul Ahzab the battle against the defense of Medina against the allied forces the allied armies the, the entire plan of the Battle of the Trench or Ghazwatul Ahzab, those allied armies or allied forces, they were formed in, this, in the city of Khaybar. And Khaybar was the headquarters for this entire plan. And some of the leaders of the, uh, of the people of Khaybar actually were the main conspirators behind the Battle of the Trench. And the Prophet ﷺ for over a year had put off dealing with the people of Khaybar. He had put it off for over a year because there were so many other things that were keeping them busy and keeping them preoccupied. We talked about in the sixth year, the Prophet ﷺ had so many other things that he had to deal with, like al he also had to deal with the Banil mustaliq Right? Banu al-Mustaliq. So he had many other things that kept him preoccupied. So the Prophet finally, almost a year and a half later, got around to dealing with the people of Khaybar. And not only that, but some of the Sahaba also mentioned that when Allah revealed Surah Al-Fatih, and we talked about this the revelation of Suratul Fath happened on the journey back from Hudaybiyah to Medina. Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala specifically in Suratul Fath says wa fathan That in the beginning of Suratul Fath, the surah of victory, Allah says inna fatahna We have granted you a very open, large, huge victory that that, rezo- that refers to the conquest of Mecca, the opening of the city of Mecca, which was to occur in the eighth year of Hijrah. And لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ بِالْحَقِّ Right, that would also talk about that as well. But in the surah Allah says, وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا That however even though the greater, larger victory is yet to come, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises them a very near, close, more immediate victory until the, lo- the time for the larger victory comes. And many of the sahaba have commentary on that particular ayah, that that refers to the battle of Khaybar. So now that we are, you know, a little over a year, almost a year and a half out from the battle of the trench, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now instructed the Prophet ﷺ to go and deal with this hostile enemy and this hostile force that resides not too far away from the city of Medina, that has already once launched an attack against the city of Medina, to basically go and deal with them at this point, And to go and resolve this situation. So that their there's hostile enemy is no longer a threat to the city of Medina and to the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ, in the month of Muharram at the beginning of the seventh year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ along with the Muslims sets out in the direction of the city of Khaybar, along with the Muslims. And some of the narrations, like Ibn Hisham mentioned, that he left Numaila ibn Abdullah al-Laythi in charge of the city of Medina. This was a companion, a sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, before we talk about the battle of Khaybar and everything that transpires there, one of the things that I wanted to share here that is very, very interesting is that If you recall from our, we discussed it here in our uh, series on the life of the Prophet in our uh, Seerah study, we talked about it here, or maybe you've read about it in the Seerah book, and if you don't recall, I'll mention it, and it's something that I would recommend reading up on or going back and listening to again. In the days of Mecca, there was a very fascinating story about an individual who came to Mecca and ended up accepting Islam and then going back to his people with instruction from the Prophet. ﷺ. And that was the story of Tufail bin Amr ad dawsi Tufail ibn Amr ad dawsi Now Tufail bin Amr, as I talked about previously, and you can read about or listen to the previous podcast, the previous recording, Tufail bin Amr was considered a very, you know, uh, respected leader. Uh, Of his time and he was considered a very smart man and intellectual of his time And he had come to Mecca on some type of business or another And he had accepted Islam during that visit He was sent back to his people after spending some time and learning The essentials at that time from the Prophet ﷺ He was sent back to his people to preach to his people after going to his people and attempting to preach to them, but finding them to be very difficult uh, to communicate with, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, bin Amr comes back to Mecca and complains about his people to the Prophet ﷺ. And in fact, goes as far as asking the Prophet ﷺ to make dua that Allah destroys his people. With the exception of his wife and his father, because they were the two who accepted Islam, nobody else responded positively or favorably to his message and to his preaching. The Prophet ﷺ as a response to the request of Tufail, he actually reprimands Tufail, And he says that, no, 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 you are incorrect and you are not understanding how to interact with your people properly. But in fact, the Prophet ﷺ instructs him, go back to your people, preach to your people, but be gentle with them, be kind with them and befriend them, you know, win their hearts over, and that's how you communicate the message to them. Because you are asking them to change their beliefs, you're asking them to change their lives, you're asking them to change maybe even their value system. That is a huge demand from these people. So you're going to have to accommodate them and work with them. And so he sends them back, and Tufail goes back to his people. And I mentioned it at that particular time that Tufail would spend the next decade, the better part of the next decade, preaching to his people, working with his people, communicating with his people. And the Sahaba would not see him again for at least 10, maybe even 12 years. And this is the moment when Tufail comes back. So Tufail comes to Medina. After having converted the bulk of his tribe to Islam, more than 80 families. And families at that particular time were you know, very large collections of people. Right? Because there's two things. Number one, even the, the nuclear family at that particular time was very large. Right? Sometimes there were two, three households within one family, or there were at least you know, half a dozen to a dozen children within each family. So they were very large collections of individuals. Not only that, but sometimes referring to a family just had a bigger meaning. That they would consider you know, siblings and all of their families and all of their children to be one family. And so, we're talking about when we say more than 80 families, we're talking about at the very least like a thousand people. If not more, okay. So Tufail comes back with 80 families. Alright, which is probably close to if not more than a thousand people. And he arrives in the city of Medina with all of these people who have accepted Islam and are eager to meet the Prophet Wasallam and learn their deen and their faith and their religion. But in doing so, when they arrive there, they find that the Prophet Wasallam and a lot of the Muslims are not in the city of Medina so, Abu Huraira عنه, tells the story, and he says that when we arrived in the city of Medina, we did not find the Prophet there. In fact, the Prophet, وسلم, we found, we arrived at night, and in the morning prayer, we found an individual by the name of Siba' ibn Urfuta al Ghatfani. Who was leading the Fajr prayer, and in the Fajr prayer he recited from Surah Maryam, Kaf Hayya Ayn Saad in the first rakah, and then in the second rakah he recited Walul Mutaffifin, Suratul Mutaffifin. So he remembered that much detail and he says that after praying al Fajr we found out that the Prophet ﷺ was in Khaybar which was not too far away so we again prepared for the journey and we set out in the direction of Khaybar until we finally came to the place of Khaybar but by the time we arrived in Khaybar the victory at Khaybar had already been achieved which we will talk about the victory at Khaybar had already occurred so when we arrived the Prophet ﷺ greeted us and in fact the Sahaba say we looked off into the horizon and we saw Tufail coming and behind to fail, we saw so many people coming from over the hill, that the entire horizon became filled with people. And Abu Hure radiallahu ta'ala anu specifically mentions that the battle was over, but the Prophet ﷺ, he addressed all the Muslims, and he said, "These new brothers and sisters of ours have arrived. If you allow me, I would like to distribute to them a portion of these spoils of war as a gift to them for their arrival and to welcome them into our community. And of course, the Muslims were more than you know happy uh, to offer this gift to their new brothers and sisters, and it was given to them. Nevertheless, going back to the scene at the, at the Battle of Khaybar. So they arrive at the place of Khaybar, and the, there's a little bit of a, some narration that also mentions some of the experiences on the journey to the Battle of Khaybar. That now, at this particular time, in the seventh year of Hijrah, Islam was spreading in that region. Muslims were being found in a lot of different places. So the Prophet ﷺ, it mentioned specifically that a couple of the places where he prayed on the journey to Khaybar, the Prophet ﷺ ended up establishing a masjid there. He prayed there, and that was the Prophet ﷺ kind of um, initiating, like a grand opening of a masjid by the Prophet ﷺ leading the prayer there. And that eventually became a place of prayer, a masjid for the people, the Muslims that were in that area. So as they were proceeding towards Khaybar, the Prophet after they prayed Asr at one place, that was very close to the place of Khaybar, the Prophet asked the sahaba, please bring some food. Right, I'm hungry, you're hungry, everyone's hungry, bring some food. And when they brought, they said, okay, Ya Rasulullah, they brought sawiq. Now what sawiq is, is that they would take some flour, they would grind up some dates, some barley, some wheat, right, some, some fat, some, some butter, right, Things like that, they would kind of grind it up and mix it up and dry it. So think of almost like a dry oatmeal or granola mix. Right, that's what it was. But it's considered very simple food. It's like very, um, it's very efficient. Right, it's very travel friendly. And it gets the job done. It's like, it's like eating like a, like a cliff bar. Right, so it's for the purposes of utility. But it's not very satisfying. Like it's not considered like a nice meal. Right, So they brought that sawiq And the Prophet ﷺ sees the sawiq And he says, don't we have anything else? And they said, Ya Rasulullah, we don't have anything else Simple people, they didn't have much So the Prophet ﷺ then told them, Okay, warm up some water Boil some water, mix it in Like oatmeal, like you would cook oatmeal And then everybody ate that the Prophet ate that and everybody ate that. And that's all they had to eat. And the narrations, the sahaba specifically mentioned that after they got done eating that sawiq, that like, kind of like oatmeal mix, that porridge, the Prophet ﷺ rinsed out his mouth and it was time for maghrib, and then the Prophet ﷺ led the sahaba in the maghrib prayer. And the reason why this is also relevant as well is that earlier the Prophet ﷺ had taught the sahaba some etiquette that whenever you eat something that has been cooked, then do wudu, before you pray again. But they specifically noted that the Prophet ﷺ ate this after it had been cooked on You know when hot water had been boiled and cooked and the Prophet ﷺ ate it and he just rinsed out his mouth and then he prayed and he did not do wudu again. And that is specifically to note the fact that the Prophet was what we call abrogation, nasakh, or the Prophet was removing the obligation. Some say it was never obligatory to begin with, but more so, some mentioned that he was removing the obligation of having to do wudu, that it was some training the Prophet was giving to them, meaning that try to make sure that you clean up after you have eaten food. So it was to teach them good habits. Nevertheless, they continue on and they proceed. And Imam Bukhari specifically mentions this narration that Amir ibn al aqwa Amir ibn al-Akwa. This is the uncle of the Sahabi, the young Sahabi that we know as Salmat ibn al aqwa But Salama was not the son of Akwa. His name was actually Salama ibn Amr ibn al aqwa He was the grandson of al aqwa So his uncle whose name was Amir, Salama. he was a young Sa'abi, he was known as a warrior. It's said that he could run as fast as a horse. And, wa- and he was also known to be able to hit a target while moving. Like he could, while running, he could take arrows from his quiver, load them and shoot them and hit a target. You know how they talk about a hitting a moving target? He could hit a target while moving, while running like super fast. Alright, so that's why he was very talented. His uncle by the name of Amir كان Shah he was a poet. So some of the narrations mentioned that he started saying, chanting some poetry, and then the sahaba started to say it along with him, and the Prophet ﷺ approved. Some narrations mentioned that he, the Prophet ﷺ called him. He was a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ called him and he said that why don't you say something to motivate the troops? Right? He knew he was a poet, and he said, Why don't you say some words that will motivate the troops? So in either case, either the Prophet him, he said it in the Prophet him, approved, or the Prophet him, requested him to do so. And the words that he said were La Humma Laula Anta Mahtadaina, Wallata Sad Dakna Wala Salina, Fakfir Fida and Laka Mattaheina, Wathabitil Akadama in La Kina, Walkiyan Sakina Tan Alaina, Inna Ida Si Habina Abeina siyahi awalu alaina. Basically, it translates roughly as that if it was not for you, O oh Allah, we would not have been guided. Nor we would have ever known to give charity. Nor we would have ever known to pray. So please forgive us so long as we continue to strive in your way. And establish our feet in the battlefield if we end up meeting the enemy. Descend down peace and tranquility upon us. And when they call us out, and try to intimidate us, we refuse to be intimidated. But when we call them out, then they run looking for cover. They go running for cover. So he started saying these words, and all the Sahaba started to, um, you know, chant this along with, after him. And the Prophet when he heard it, he was so pleased with just, you know, the spirit, not just what he was saying, but how he was motivating everyone and getting everyone into the right mindset and the spirit. The Prophet said, May God send his mercy upon that man. May Allah bless that man. Right? And Umar, radiallahu ta'ala, anhu in one narration, he says that, wajabati ya Nabi Allah, لولا imtana'ta na bihi. That O Messenger of Allah, may Allah accept your du'a for him. Meaning, of course, Allah has accepted your du'a for him. He is a very meaning that saying it almost has a source of like admiring him. Wow, how amazing is that? The Prophet of God makes du'a for blessing and mercy upon that individual, and then they said that O Messenger of Allah, thank you for approving of what he did and allowing us to benefit from this because they said it's motivating everyone and inspiring everyone. And we will come back to talk about. Amir bin al aqwa in just a moment, Insha'Allah. So, after they arrive at the uh, place of Khaybar, the 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 so the narrations basically mention. So first and foremost, when they arrive at the place of Khaybar, the Prophet ﷺ lined up the companions. He lined up the Sahaba, radiAllahu Anhum, and then the Prophet ﷺ said, "Qifu." Meaning that repeat after me, right? The Prophet ﷺ told them, stop, line up, pay attention, and meaning engage in this dua in supplication with me. And the Prophet ﷺ made the following dua. And this is narrated by many of the scholars of Sira like Ibn Ishaq and Bayhaqi and others. Where the Prophet ﷺ, he said, اللَّهُمَّ samawati Sabi wa ma azlalna." O oh Allah, you are the master of the heavens, and uh, the seven heavens, and everything that the seven heavens they cover. Wa wa ma and O oh Allah, you are the creator, the sustainer, the master, the Lord of the seven earths, and everything that they contain. الشَّيَاطِينَ وَمَا أضللنا. And oh Allah, you are even the Lord and the master of the shayateen. The, the satans, the devils, those who try to dissuade people from you. And everyone that they try to lead astray, you are their Lord and master and sustainer as well. And then he said, فَإِنَّا نَسْأَلُكَ Wa And O oh, Allah, we ask you, we beseech you, we ask you for the good of this town, for the good of the people who live in this town, and for the good of everything that is in this town. And then he goes on to say that when أعوذ we take refuge with you from the evil of this town. وَشَرِّ From the evil of the people of this town. wa And from the evil of everything this town contains. أقدموا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. Then he told the Sahaba, "Now proceed forward with the name of Allah, who is a Rahman, ar Rahim, the abundantly merciful, the constantly benevolent." So this was the du'a of the Prophet ﷺ. From that point on forward, now Anas bin Malik ta'ala anhu narrates, in a number of different narrations, that when the Prophet ﷺ would arrive, whenever we went to go face off against an enemy, and we arrived at night time, the Prophet ﷺ would never attack at night. He would wait until the morning, so that there was an opportunity to converse with the people, and to see if the people would accept Islam. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit further. The Prophet ﷺ will clarify this in just a moment, we'll talk about that. But he would first want to present Islam, and see if the people would accept Islam. That was the first primary, and the most important objective. And if they would refuse and reject Islam and maintain their opposition to Islam and the Prophet ﷺ, then at that time they would engage with the people. So they arrived uh, at night time and they waited until the morning and they went in the morning time and they lined up the troops. Now, many of the you know, people of Khaybar, when they went out, some of the people that used to work on the outskirts of Khaybar, right, they came out in the morning time and they saw this army of the Muslims there. And when they saw them, they ran back towards Khaybar, screaming, "Muhammadun wal ma'ahu. Right? Muhammad and his army is here. Khamis basically refers to an army because they would divide the army into five portions. There would be the portion in the middle, there would be the maymana, the Maysara, right, the right flank, the left flank, there would be the ma- uh, muqaddama, Muqaddamah al-Jaysh and jaysh. In the front side of the army and the back side of the army. So that's how they would kind of organize an army, so it would be called Khamis. So they said Muhammad and his army is here. And they ran back, Faadbaruhu raban. They ran back to Khaybar screaming, and they went into Khaybar, and everyone went into the biggest fortress of Khaybar, and they locked themselves up in the fortress. And when the Prophet saw this, the Prophet said, Allahu Akbar, Kharibat Khaybar, that Allah is there, you know, Allah is greater than everything and anything. Khaybar has now decided its fate and it will meet its doom. Inna itha fasa'a the Prophet invoking an eye of the Quran said that when we arrive at the gates of the fortress of a people then their time has come very, very near. So they laid siege to the people of khaybar and to the fortress of Khaybar. Now when they laid siege to the fortress of Khaybar, it was a huge fortress and it was very difficult. And so the narrations mentioned that they spent a number of days out there. Now remember we already talked about, and that's why I said this is going to come up again. We had already talked about the fact that the Muslims were still... Uh, overwhelmingly in very difficult economic and financial circumstances right? They still didn't have a lot of money and a lot of uh, food and supplies and things of that nature So they didn't have a lot of food and supplies with them they, And we talked about it that on their way there they just had to eat like this They had to warm up that water, put some of that granola and that oatmeal that mix in there And just drink it or eat it Right, and so that was their situation. Very quickly, they started to run out of their food supplies. So the narrations actually mention that the uh, that there was very severe kind of uh, hunger and starvation that started to occur amongst the Muslim ranks. Right, and not only that, but there's another narration which also kind of alludes to this fact of the simplicity of the Muslim army. The simplicity. Many people didn't have weapons. Some people had like very small, you know, uh, swords. And the smaller swords were because they couldn't make larger swords. They didn't have enough, you know, iron to basically make larger swords. So they had small swords, right? What we would almost consider like a dagger or a large knife. We probably have knives in our kitchen that are as long as or as big as some of the swords that they had to fight with. Right, some didn't even have like very, you know, proper clothing. They were just barely covered with like patches and rips and tears in their clothing. And Anas bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu in the narration mentions that what kind of a man was the Prophet He says, Ya'udul Marid. He used to go and visit the ill and the sick. يَتْبَعُ is The Prophet would accompany the burial of every person who passed away in his community. That's the type of leader he was. Wa da'wat al mamluk. The Prophet would, you know, uh, accept the invitation of anyone in the community who invited him, even if a slave, even if a slave invited the Prophet ﷺ to sit and eat a couple of dates with him. The Prophet would go to honor this person and accept their invitation. Wa himar. And the Prophet ﷺ would ride a donkey, very simple animal. Right, what's considered a very simple ride. And that and he goes on to say that That on the day of Banu Quraidah the Prophet was riding a donkey. On the day of the Banu Nadir, he was riding a donkey. At the time, at the Battle of Khaybar, the Prophet was riding a donkey. Right? So that shows the simplicity of the Prophet in the Muslim army. So they're going through all of this, they're laying siege to the fortress of Khaybar. They're running out of food, very difficult circumstances. And in the middle of this, as the sahaba are starting to get to a place where things are very difficult, they're kind of at, their, at the end of their wits, if you will. right? Things are becoming very, very difficult, almost intolerable. At this time, now through the dua of the Prophet sallallahu and the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are now going to be blessed with a miraculous victory. Before we talk about that victory, Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, if I, if I, uh, I want to mention, Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu talks about his story. And Salmat ibn al-Aqwa also mentions this in the narration of Bukhari. That originally when they left for the Battle of Khaybar, Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu had stayed back in Medina. Initially when the army departed, Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu had stayed back in Medina to tend to some things, right? Family issues and things like that. But then Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu also it mentions that Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu was also very sick, he was very ill. He had come down with a fever his eyes, um, like he had an infection in both of his eyes. Um, and so, because of that, he couldn't even see clearly. And traveling would aggravate it because of the sand and the dust. Everything getting into the eye would aggravate it. So, actually, one of the remedies for this type of sickness was to not travel. But Ali, after they departed the next day or so, he kind of says to himself, I would stay back behind the Prophet Wasallam? No, no, no. Unacceptable. That's just unacceptable. That's not how this works. So he leaves the city of Medina and eventually joins up with the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim army. And he gets there a couple of days after they've gotten there. They've been laying siege to the people of Khaybar. So he gets there at night. That same night, the Prophet, ﷺ, the Muslims for a few days have been trying to make advances against the fortress of Khaybar and they've been repelled every single time. So, the night, that same night that Ali ﷺ arrives in the encampment of Khaybar, the Prophet ﷺ makes a proclamation. He says, I will give the flag, right, the standard, I will give that to someone tomorrow, رَجُلٌ يُحِبُّهُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ A man whom Allah and His Messenger have love for. It's one thing to say, يُحِبُّ اللَّهَ ورسوله. He, I will give it to a man who loves God and His Messenger. All the sahaba love God and His Messenger. But he says, I will give it to a man whom Allah and His Messenger love. And then he says, "Yuftah alehi," And God will grant us a miraculous victory at the hands of this individual. So the Sahaba say, salmat ibn says, فَنَحْنُ نَرْجُوهَا Everybody wanted to be that particular individual. Some of the other narrations, there's many, many narrations which mention the same thing. They say, فَبَاتَ النَّاسِ يَدُوكُونَ لَيْلَتَهُمْ People spent the night restless tossing and turning, discussing, whispering. Who's it going to be? Could it be him? Could it be me? Could it be you? Right? اَيُّهُمْ <laughs> يُعْطَاهَا Who will be given this standard, this flag? And all night long people kept discussing this. Finally in the morning, after the morning prayer, everyone huddled around the Prophet ﷺ, eager to see who this person would be. And the Prophet ﷺ, he says, Ali Where is Ali? Where is Ali? So though somebody pointed him out and they said, Who Ya Rasullah? Here he is. But he's very sick and ill, and both of his eyes were like infected and swollen up and really in bad condition. Like he couldn't even see clearly. So the Prophet calls him. In narration he says, Udunumini. Come close, come close. And he was kind of staying away because typically the etiquette was that it was considered to be like infectious. So you kind of keep your distance from people. And the Prophet ﷺ says, no, come close. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he makes dua. And he then applies some of his saliva in his hands. And he rubs his hands together. And then he places his hands on the eyes of Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala and the narration mentions that when the Prophet ﷺ removed his hands, the eyes of Ali ﷺ had been completely healed. bihi waja'un. It was as if he had never even been ill. It was not that he started to recover, or he started to get better, or it was like a painkiller, or anything. No, no, it was like there was nothing ever wrong. There were no signs. Right? He had been like, you know, tearing, the watering, like his eyes had been watering for days, he had been itching them and scratching them and rubbing them, so it's, his face was red. But once the Prophet removed his hands, everything was done. Completely cured. And then the Prophet handed him the standard, the flag. Now Ali رضي الله تعالى عنه, this is the conversation I was telling you about. Ali رضي الله تعالى عنه says, "Ya Rasulullah." أُقَاتِلُهُمْ حَتَّى يَكُنُوا مِثْلَنَا Shall I wage war against them until they become just like us? And the Prophet ﷺ, he says, أُنْفُذْ عَلَى رِسْلِكَ حَتَّى تَنْزِلْ بِسَاحَتِهِمْ Follow, right, the course of action, like follow the game plan until you arrive at the gates. ثُمَّ إِلَى الْإِسْلَامِ And then call them to Islam. وأخبرهم بما يجب عليهم من حق الله تعالى فيه. and tell them what Allah subhanahu wa taala demands of them, meaning talk to them, convince them to have a relationship with Allah and what they owe to Allah subhanahu wa taala for and then not only that but then he motivates him, he inspires him, he encourages him, right? And and this is the part I want to emphasize that the Prophet is not saying call them to Islam like offer a disclaimer. Accept Islam or you will be destroyed. And then that's it. Then begin the war, right? Like you're not just getting a megaphone and saying, hey, become Muslim. No, alright, let's go. That's no, this is not a disclaimer. But talk to them, convince them. And then he says, Ya Ali fawallahi. I swear to Allah, the Prophet ﷺ takes an oath. If God was to guide through you even one singular individual. And what's very interesting about the Arabic, the language that the Prophet ﷺ uses, Rajulan means one man, means one person. But he says, Rajulan Wahidan. The Wahidan is unnecessary. Rajulan means one. In Arabic, Rajulan means one, Rajulan, two, Rajulain, two, Rijal is plural. Rajulan means one, Rajulan, Wahidan. This is done for emphasis when you're trying to say even one, even one singular individual. Right? He says, He says, This is better for you than if you were to have. You know, some of the best wealth in the world. He mentions red she-camels, which was basically an expression in Arabic meaning. It doesn't matter if you would conquer these people, and you would achieve the greatest victory, and you 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 would acquire more spoils of war than anyone has ever seen. All of that is irrelevant. If one person can be brought to Allah, one person can be guided to Islam, so he's inspiring him, make a sincere effort to bring them closer to Allah and closer to Islam. So at this particular time, Ali radiallahu ta'ala he proceeds forward. One other thing that I want to mention here, kind of, not, it's not really tangential, but I want to mention here as a detail. There is a famous narration that is found in the Sahih of Imam Muslim. Imam Nawawi has also placed it in his Arba'een. And this particular hadith is the source of a lot of discussion amongst people today. Where the Prophet ﷺ says, it's an authentic narration, that قَاتِلْهُمْ حَتَّىٰ يَشْهَدُوا إِلَهَا اللَّهُ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ فَإِذَا فَعَلُوا ذَلِكَ فَإِذَا فَعَلُوا ذَلِكَ قَدَ مَنَعُوا وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ إِلَّا بِحَقِّهَا وَحِسَابُهُمْ عَلَى That the Prophet says that fight them until they accept that, there is, that they bear witness and testimony that there is no one worthy of worship except for Allah and that Muhammad is the slave and the messenger of Allah and if they do that then they have protected their lives and their, their properties and their ultimate reckoning is with God. Okay? So the reason why I bring this up is that this is, the, this is the subject of a lot of conversation. Because this is brought up a lot of times by unfortunately some Muslims, but this is oftentimes brought up by a lot of non-Muslims as well, to point to the fact that Islam is not practical... Or Islam is irreconcilable with modern-day life and society. That Islam cannot coexist with other religions and other faiths. That minor, Muslims as a minority population in this country or anywhere else in the world are problematic by nature. People claim that. Because they point to a hadith like that saying that, it's saying you have to fight people, you have to wage war against them unless, until they become Muslim. Otherwise, it's just constant war. There's either war or everybody becomes Muslim. There's no other third option. There's no in between, right? And they point to a hadith like this. And the reason why I bring it up here is because the Sahih Imam Muslim, the Sunan of Imam Bayhaqi, the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq, of Ibn Hisham, of Ibn Kathir, and many many other references all clearly establish. That the Prophet issued this as a directive at the Battle of Khaybar. That this was not set out of context. This was not some general uh, directive like establishing prayer. This was said specifically in the context of the Battle of Khaybar. That this was to be done in a battle. That this does not apply outside of a battlefield. Right, so that's very, very important. And my point is to my 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 purpose is to point out that every text has a context, and without the context, people are lost within the text. People don't know what to do with the text. All right, so that's very important to note here. Nevertheless, as Ali radiAllahu taala anhu, he approaches the gates. At that particular time, the people of Khaybar who have also Tired at this point of the siege They, they opened the gates And they send out a warrior At that particular time Who was known as Marhab Marhab was one of the greatest warriors that they had He was known as the greatest warrior of Khaybar So they sent out Marhab And he basically goes out there And he proclaims He calls for a challenger Who will come and face me? And the narration mentions that He was wearing a helmet Okay He was wearing a helmet And in that helmet There was a big Like a gemstone That was placed at the head of the helmet Right So it was very ornate It was very elaborate It was very flashy And he's wearing this helmet and he comes out there and he says, Who will challenge me? Now I forgot to describe Ali radiallahu The narration describes that Ali radiallahu was wearing like a robe or a cloak. And the robe that Ali radiallahu was wearing was like a dark red, like almost like a maroon. So it was very breathtaking in and of itself. And the Prophet gives him the standard, the flag. So Ali radiallahu plants the flag and he goes out there. With his sword, and he says that I will fight you. So when Marhab looks at Ali radiallahu taala anhu, this was a tactic at that time. He tries to intimidate Ali radiallahu taala and he says, He says that Khaybar, like he and some narrations mention that he reaches down and he picks up dirt off the ground and he goes the earth the ground of khaybar knows that i am marhab the ground of khaybar khaybar knows that i am marhab wearing my armor that i am a very experienced warrior like i have, meaning these are all expressions i'm literally translating but I'll translate properly what he's saying is that this earth this dirt knows who i am Because I have shed the blood of many men on this earth On this dirt I have soaked this ground with the blood of men When I step out into the battlefield Lions come to cheer me on Right, that again That's a literal translation What it means is The greatest warriors lay down their weapons And spectate when I step into the battlefield People are left breathless when they witness me in the battlefield, and they await to witness who will be my latest conquest. Okay, so he says this. Ali radiAllahu tala'an anhu steps forward and he says, "Ana laddi sammatni ummi Haydara, kaleythi ghabat shadiil qaswara, akiilukum bissai kaila sandara." Which again, I can literally translate, but I'll translate properly. Ali radiallahu ta'ala, who says, I am the man that when I was born, my mother looked at me for the very first time and called me lion. <laughs> right? And then he says that I am a lion who rules many jungles, not one jungle, but many jungles. All right? Meaning that other warriors bow down in front of me. Meaning other warriors, they lay down their weapons in front of me. And they surrender when they see me. I don't even fight people. I just go out and people surrender. And he says that you are about to taste my wrath. I will teach you a lesson today. Right? And the narration goes on to mention that they both try to strike each other. فَاخْتَلَفَ دَرْبَتَيْن They basically both strike and they're, they kind of like... You know, they cross swords and as they both strike and they clash their swords, Ali radiallahu who was known for his movement. It wasn't just like this brute strength. Ali radiallahu was a very skillful, agile fighter. So he was known for his moves. So Ali, as they clash swords, Ali radiallahu ta'ala, like almost like spins off of that with the move with the momentum of that, he spins off of that, brings his sword around, and strikes Marhab on the head. And the narration mentions that he strikes him, not just on the head and on the helmet, but exactly on the 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 the, the, the gemstone that he had fixed on his helmet, he strikes him there, his sword breaks through the gemstone, cracks through the helmet, goes through his skull until it finally gets caught in like his chest. Alright? So basically I mean he just pretty much finishes the guy, right? And so Ali just dismisses this particular individual. That in and of itself is such a huge like moral like blow. To, there's such a huge blow to the morale Of the, of the people of Khaybar That they've practically surrendered at this point But some of the narrations mention That after Ali radiAllahu ta'ala anhu Dispatches Marhab Then at that particular time Ibn Ishaq mentions Marhab's brother Who was also considered a warrior of Khaybar His name was Yasir He comes out and he says, Halmin Mubaris, Is there anyone that will fight me? So, as Zubair, Zubair ibn al Awam, right, the cousin of the Prophet, ﷺ, he was the son of the aunt of the Prophet, ﷺ, Safiya, right, the warrior aunt of the Prophet, ﷺ, right? So, Zubair ibn al Awam, he steps out. He says, Let me go and fight him. Safiya, the aunt of the Prophet, had accompanied the Muslims to Khaybar. And the reason why she would accompany is that she used to come as like a nurse. All right? So she had accompanied the army as like a nurse. So she says, because this man, Marhab, was huge, and his brother Yasin, he was like a giant, like a mountain of a man. And so when she sees him, she, she's, very, she's a brave woman, but she says, as a mother, she's a mother. Right, she says that, يَقْتُلُ ibni يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ He will kill my son, O Messenger of Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Bal يَقْتُلُهُ إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهِ He said, no, your son will kill him. And the same thing happens, they go out to fight, and Zubair رضي الله تعالى was able to strike down this warrior, Yasir. And later on, somebody would tell him, وَاللَّهِ إِن كَانَ سَيْفُكَ يَوْمَ إِذٍ لَصَارِمًا One day later, you know how people talk about like war stories. They were like, "Man, you were on fire that day, right? Your your sword was made of fire that day. It was unstoppable." And he said, Wallahi makana salimun." He said, "I don't know what you're talking about. My sword was not on fire. My sword felt like ice." Wallakini akrahtuhu. He said, I, could, I felt like I couldn't even handle my sword. That day, the victory was solely because of the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. God gave truth. God realized the words of the Messenger ﷺ. When the Prophet ﷺ said that Zubayr will win, when he told my mother, your son will win, that was the only thing that carried me to victory. I felt like I was dragging my sword. I was overwhelmed. But that victory was solely due to the words of the Prophet ﷺ. At that point, the Muslim forces, the people of Khaybar, feel like they've been defeated, like they are repelled backwards, and they're overwhelmed. And at that point, the Muslim forces, they push forward. And as the Muslim forces, they push forward, then at that particular time, there's a narration that is very well known, Ibn Ishaq mentions this narration, that as the Muslim forces are pushing now into the fortress of Khaybar, now the... The enemy had like the vantage point in a strategic position. They were all posted along the top of the fortress and now they could shoot down. And it was very dangerous for the Muslims that were initially entering into the fortress. So they said, What do we do? So that's when it mentions that Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he. Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu ripped the door, the gate. Of the fortress off of its hinges. And he picked it up and he lifted it up in front of him and started to walk forward with an entire gate as a shield. And he used it as a shield. And he kept pushing forward with it until all the Muslim for- forces came in, the army came in, and was able to take over the fortress. Then he just kind of like tossed it aside, like you know, you just pick up something and just like tossed it aside. And then the narrator of the hadith, Abu Rafi' al Mola, Mola Ummi Salama. Abu Rafiyyah, Mawla ummi Salama. He or uh, excuse me, Abu Rafi, Mawla, Rasulullah Sallallahu He was a freed slave of the Prophet He says, <laughs> He says, you, then after the battle, me and seven more men, fighters, me and seven more men, we went. To not lift the door, to just flip it over. We need to get it out of the way, we just needed to kind of flip it over. And me and seven more people, eight men went and tried to flip the door over and we were there for like 30 minutes, like fighting with this gate and we couldn't flip it. And Ali radiAllahu ta'ala carried it around and then tossed it aside like that. And this was again, this is why I said miraculous. Right? Not that we doubt that Ali radiallahu talanu was super strong, of course he was a very strong man, but there there was something otherworldly going on. This was Nus Nasrun Minallah. Wa fathun Kareeb. Wa Bashirul This was a victory from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's a lot more to talk about here within the conclusion of the Battle of Khaybar, but I will go ahead and stop and pause here because it's time for Salat al isha So inshallah we'll proceed, we'll continue in the following session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that we've said and heard. Subhanallah bi hamdihi, subhanaka Allah bi hamdihi, na la ilaha illa anta, nasagfiraka wa natubu ilayhi. Jazakumullah khayr.